The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, joining you from the lands of the Lekwungen speaking peoples, the Songhees, and the Esquimalt First Nations, recently known as Victoria, BC, Canada. Okay, well, we have another collapse episode. Who would have thought the collapse topic episodes would be so popular? Um, Well, I would have. It's, uh, you know, observation. Look out the window. We're living in late stage racialized capitalism. Things are collapsing. Uh, If this is a new topic for you, just go back in the archive. Uh, I did a collapse in a nutshell episode that has actually proven to be as popular as, um, well, it's like in my top five episodes out of 205, I guess we've done now. So today we're going to talk about fascism, friends. Why is it important? Well, because in collapse, authoritarianism always increases. And of course, we don't like strongman dictators, military coups, or religious fundamentalism. We hate all the different forms of authoritarianism. But the especially chilling thing about fascism is that it doesn't just happen in the political sphere. It happens at the dinner table. Average people live under authoritarianism, often for generations, without it really altering their daily reality that much at all. You know, the power struggles of dictators and regime changes could maybe hardly make a difference in their day-to-day lives. But fascism uses the populace and uses populist movements as part of its social control. So fascism goes deeper and far beyond fear and military might to secure its stranglehold. This episode is an excerpt from my online course, Collapse 101, which is accessed as part of my monthly membership subscription program called the Numinous Network. So we have a Collapse 101 course. It has monthly classes and a monthly AMA, Ask Me uh, Ask Me Anything. We do those almost every month. And This session was one where I was sharing about the hallmarks of fascism so we can be alert to some of the sneaky ways it wends itself into our lives. And I thought I would publish it on the podcast so that folks could get a little sneak peek into the Collapse 101 course. And maybe if you want to take advantage of Free Week happening September 17th to 23rd, 2023, um, this would just give you an idea of what the on-demand video classes are like. So without further ado, let's dive in to Fascism 101. Welcome everyone to uh, Collapse 101. Here we are again, and today we are talking about the rise of fascism and talking about how it intersects with um, or is influenced by, connects with, Uh, economics. And the reason this is important is because the microcosm of fascism is cult dynamics. And so when we start to see back to the land movements, when we start to see um, 
anything that has to do with like restoration of a more organic way of living or what Ruben and I call the small and delicious life, those are signals and flags that we should all be thinking about like, oh, um, how do we ensure this does not devolve into um, a fascist movement? It's something that I'm tracking all the time. Ruben's tracking all the time. And um, it kind of feels a little bit late to the party to be <laughs> kind of doing a fascism 101 since many people have been talking about it since, since the mid-teens, uh, 20-teens. Um, but I think it will become evident <laughs> why it's still important to be tracking today and why especially when we start to find that, um, you know, if we look at collapse and then behavior change, and then we realize, okay, well, the, the actual response to this is a small and delicious life, the new concern comes in, and that is that we have to ensure that this doesn't become a fascistic movement. And if we don't know what fascism is, and we don't understand the um, signs of it, it will be very easy to slip into a fascist movement without us realizing. And I think we use the term fascism, like, oh, they're a fascist or they're an eco-fascist with a kind of general sense that that's bad. But if we really parse it out, what is the difference between say fascism and socialism and communism? There are some very distinct differences that are very relevant when it comes to social movements. Um, and the cult dynamics that we see in many cultural movements, particularly around um, natural living, uh, health is healthy living, organics, biodynamics, vegetarianism, veganism, all these things, there are hallmarks that we need to be aware of. And this is, they sort of just reminds us why having an, uh, a very strong lens on power and an, a literacy around the interlocking systems of oppression of capitalist, imperialist, white supremacist patriarchy is so important. Um, in other words, being intersectional in our movements is so important. It, it helps protect us from fascism. So what is, what is fascism? Fascism is a political philosophy. It's a social movement and a regime all working together that exalt a nation and often a race above the individual. And it stands for a centralized, absolute authoritarian, autocratic government. And it is headed by a dictatorial leader who often is like, not only does this leader have total power, but they have a huge amount of charisma and hyper-masculinity. In this regime, there is pretty severe economic and social regimentation. In other words, there is um, a very clear sense that all social movements, all economic activity are meant to go back into benefiting the state, benefiting the autocratic ruler. And this is enforced, this, there's forcible suppression of the people, of resistance, of any other social movements through the state police, through the military, through the judicial system, through the educational system. So in other words, it's this total comprehensive 
political and social system. And it's more a social system than a political system. And it views one people as superior to others and therefore deserving of unilateral control, total power, authority, and cultural dominance. Fascism without that social quality is like a, a dictatorship, but there are many different kinds of dictatorship. Fascism specifically has a social movement that helps bring the fascist dictator to power. So they come to power, fascist regimes come to power on the basis of this very large revolutionary mass movement. It's spurred by a revolutionary spirit. Um, it's a political party along with a number of civil society organizations usually. And they have this aim to reject the decadence of whatever the prior um, power holders were um, noted for. And they also, and this is key, they want to revive a former glory days that carried with it a sense of powerful national identity. So they wanna make their country great again. Like the links between Trumpism and fascism will be self-evident through the language. Um, it's so direct, it's like absurd sometimes. And again, absurdity is a hallmark of collapse. When you, If you're ever looking around being like, that is absurd, that makes no sense. What is even happening? You know you're in collapse. So, okay, let's talk about Nazism. Nazism is a form of fascism specifically related to white supremacy originating in Germany. So it's Nazi, Nazism is a translated acronym. Um, the Nazis were called the National Socialist German Workers Party and it had a Z in it in the social of whatever. And so that's why we call it Nazis or Nazism. Um, they were not socialist, but you will see that they use all of the trappings and language of a socialist, a collectivist reform, but they're doing it in service of the Aryan race. We're gonna circle back to Nazi, Nazism in a moment. So if you think about all the different kinds, the diversity of fascism around the world you have in, just in the last like uh, century, there's Italy's Mussolini, there's uh, Germany's Hitler, Spain's Franco, Portugal's Salazar, France's Pétain, dictators in Hungary, Romania, Croatia, Japan, Imperial Japan, it's a fascist regime. They all share this economic principle in common, which is that although they did increase state control over institutions, and they did all expand government programs and control, they also protected and allied with private capital. They protected capitalist monopolies that were beneficial to the state or supportive of the state. So when you think about fascism and capitalism, scholars will often sort of disagree if um, like whether there is a fascist form of economic organization because fascism is so diverse in its execution. Fascist movements, like tend to, they tend to not have fixed economic principles other than 
the general desire that the economy should help build a strong national identity. So it's that social imperative. So capitalism has been both supported and rejected and opposed by fascist governments in different times and places. However, almost all fascist governments held to a belief that economic prosperity would follow once a nation had a cultural and spiritual awakening about its greatness and about its original peoples who were meant to stir, steward that greatness and who representative and, and were, um, yeah, representative of that greatness. So as long as they have strict control over the constituents of the nation's economic engine, they don't need to own them outright. As long as the economic benefit serves the natural interest and keeps the financial center at home, and as long as the enjoyment of financial reward doesn't, to the public at least, appear hedonistic or excessive, as long as it's like quiet rich, right? Then fascism is um, happy to support the pursuit of private property and profit and offer a lot of benefits to big business. So private excess is fine, but you don't want the public to know, um, lest it cause the stirrings of class revolution. So if we think, oh, okay, um, you know, most of us grew up with quite a lot of um, denigration of communism. If you're like Gen X or older, I should say, not most of us, but many of us right now. And so when you actually kind of look, though, at like the economics, of it, it's obviously very nuanced and complex. But in a nutshell, communism expropriates private capital and collectivizes it run by the state. Fascism asserts total control of society, but generally cooperates with certain private capitalists, the ones that support the fascist ideology and that help to enforce government control, surveillance, et cetera, et cetera. So Mussolini, he summarized it best when he said, the fascist government will accord full freedom to private enterprise and will abandon all intervention in private economy. So, the, but the thing that tends to complicate fascism and capitalism is that that laissez-faire attitude that Mussolini was talking about towards private capital, that sort of predominates in the early stages of fascism, but it tends to dissolve into greater and greater control not so much by the government, but by the dictator himself and his cronies. So over time, that kind of more or less laissez-faire, as long as it's good for the state and the national identity, that arm's length control of capitalism gets less and less until it becomes basically an oligarchy. So um, here's where then, <laughs> like social Darwinism comes in. So fascism operates on this idea of social Darwinism, which it's basically believed that it is natural and good for the strongest members of society to dominate the weaker or the more marginalized. So economically speaking, this means you support and valorize the most successful individual business people while making things like striking 
like making strikes illegal or using the police force in the service of union busting or just not penalizing employers who harass unionizing employees or striking workers. So let's bring in like another kind of present day example. Today, some people would argue that Russia is a fascist dictatorship and it is a close analog but remember, fascism is just one kind of dictatorship, and Putin didn't come to power through a mass movement or a revolutionary spirit. So he didn't come to power as a charismatic leader, though he does employ those typical fascist um, codes of hypermasculinity and, you know, national identity to assert his power. Um, and when we were uh, honeymooning in St. Petersburg, Russia, Ruben and I um, hired a local uh, private tour guide, this like younger woman in her 20s. And we probably were like endangering certainly uh, her economic um, access, like maybe not her life, but, you know, like we were pressing her with questions about um, Russian culture. This was in like 2013. And every time we asked her about Putin, she would have something nice to say. And she basically said, Russians enjoy a powerful leader. And that was all she would say. Like, she was basically like, you guys are fucking gonna put me in trouble, so stop asking. But basically, Putin came to power through um, the KGB and supported by military powers. He's very strategic, but he has more of a mafia-like control um, that's supported by cronies. So. It, Russia is more of a dictatorship working in concert with oligarchy. So he didn't destroy the former, the structures and the apparatus of the former state. He just hollowed them out so that it's like a simulacrum of democracy. He just hollowed out those institutions and uses them for his own purpose. He didn't have like a wholesale revolution. So we, we wouldn't actually say Putin is a fascist. But we have other present day, very close to home examples that we could use for that. So this brings us to America and why it's so helpful to look back at Nazi Germany to learn some lessons about where fascism really leads. Because fascism is so insidious and sneaky because it recruits and, and genuinely believes many of the same things that those of us who are seeking like plurality and democracy also believe. But if you give fascism an inch, it will pave over you for miles. So we have to still be vigilant. So I'm sharing this because, you know, on the surface, promoting a collapse result uh, response of like a small and delicious life, that is exactly what they did in Germany leading up to World War II. So I want to map it out for you so you can be aware of the pitfalls. You can be cognizant of the need to be politically literate so you can check yourself and also so you can socially resist these currents that, that are very much feeding in, like here, yeah, very much feeding into each other and we have to be aware of that. I also wanna make sure that you feel like you can resist in whatever forms are available to you. Um, and in order to be able to resist, you have to be able to identify, you know, track the signs, um, and have a basic framework and a language to articulate your concerns to your people when you're worried that what they're involved in or the consequences of their behavior and associations could have more far-reaching and more damaging impacts than they maybe intend. 
So I do want to speak right now just specifically to folks. I know there are many of us who um, have people we've known and loved, people who were our colleagues, people who were students in trainings with us, people who were our naturopaths or our organic farmer neighbors or our yoga teachers who we've lost to conspirituality and QAnon and things like anti-trans rhetoric. And there's such a deep grief there. And for me, a fear of the future, a little bit of paranoia or at least vigilance and tension in public discourse. Like who do you, how do you resist? And especially if you hold nuanced beliefs, like who do you get associated with? I, it's, it just feels like very sensitive and dangerous terrain right now. And so speaking for myself, like I'm very COVID cautious and I am vaccinated and boosted, even though I don't love big pharma and I'm not sure about vaccine efficacy, but I don't want my position to be misconstrued. And I also don't want to get doxxed, right? So like, it's a very scary time to be speaking out and resisting fascism because as our ancestors in various parts of the world and various times in history have already discovered, fascism starts at home with ideology. It's much more than politics. It's a way of thinking and it has a mythic and it, and it has spiritual components, which mean it can cast a very, very wide net. So here we are in this session, we're, we're gonna trace sort of the political genealogies so we can understand the present in light of the past. So this is a quote by Ernst Lehmann, who was a botanist and a taxonomist. He said, only through a reintegration of humanity with nature can our people be made stronger. That was one sentence inside a larger uh, paper, or I think it was a small book he wrote, where he was talking and like waxing poetic about German people, German nature, German forests. We must save the forest so that Germany remains German. And he and many of the, the great thinkers and advisors, close advisors to Hitler were stout conservationists. And so this is how blood and soil, the philosophy of blood and soil took root. So blood and soil, when you hear that phrase, it is the synthesis of naturalism and nationalism. So it was an early Nazi slogan used in Germany to evoke this idea of a pure Aryan race and the territory it wanted to conquer. So glossary time Aryan is an obsolete term, it's debunked, um, but it emerged in the late 1800s and it was attempting to describe um, a proto-Indo-European European heritage as its own distinct racial grouping. So basically the idea was that there were three um, main races in the world. There was Caucasian, Semitic or Jews and Hamitic or brown and black people. And the belief was that Aryan people were a particular and superior subset of the Caucasian race. So for instance, Slavic people were not included in this particular kind of white supremacy. This is not true. This is not like race is a social construct. This is not a real thing. Um, however, that's what where blood and soil originated. So this was Nazi Germany's ideal of a 
racially defined national body, so the blood, linked and united by a settlement area. That's the soil. This concept was foundational to the Nazi ideology and to its appeal, but it predates the Nazi, Nazi regime. They didn't actually make it up. It was actually a term coined in the late 1800, uh, 1800s, and it was just amplified during the interwar period. And there was this particular social organization, a club called the Artemon League, and it was a Volkish movement. Volkish meaning um, of the people. And it was a movement towards ruralism and back to the land philosophy. And it was adopted and ultimately absorbed by the Nazis, but it had been there for a long time. So then it was further popularized. It had this revival because of the German minister of food and agriculture, Richard Dore. And he wrote several just like diabolical books. Um, but one of them was a new nobility based on blood and soil. In that, he proposed a systematic eugenics program for food and people, arguing for selective breeding as a cure-all for problems that plagued the state after World War I. Um, in 1928, he also wrote another book called Peasantry is the Life Source of the Nordic Race. And in this, he presented his theory that um, the difference between the Nordic people and the Southeastern Europeans, the Italians and all that, was based on the Nordic people's connection to superior land. So he was a very influential, influential member of the Nazi party. He was a noted and well-respected race theorist, and he assisted the party in gaining support like huge support among common Germans outside the city. So the rural base. And I know we've been talking about this for a long time, but if you are just newly like, what? This is so, what happened in 2015? And yes. So prior to their ascension to power, the Nazis called for this like kind of um, draining of the swamp. They literally, they, they called for a return from the cities to the countryside, they valorized sort of like country and rural ideas. This agrarian sentiment allowed opposition to both like the middle class and to the aristocracy. And they presented the, the farmer or rural life as like the superior figure and way of being beside the moral swamp of the city. And they used the term swamp specifically. This doctrine also played into the ideas of the Nazi ideal of a woman, sturdy, rural, peasant girl who worked the land, who bore many strong children, you know, was athletic, was like tanned by outdoor work, was like beautiful. And country women just did give birth, birth to more children than city women. So that was also a factor in the denigration, not only of city women, but of cities themselves, that they would then, because it's just like so absurd. But anyway, they would cause the downfall of the nation because there wouldn't be as many of these like healthy, strong, athletic, beautiful, robust, many baby having women out in the country. And there was lots of film propaganda around this as well. And they were often about like girls going to the city only to become like pregnant, but abandoned or like, you know, they would 
become a prostitute. They their their child would be born malformed. There's like a very popular one where this woman, you know, throws herself in the river to drown herself, but she leaves a note to her brother asking for forgiveness um, for leaving the countryside. There was also a huge um, movie, a very popular movie about like a mystical forest under attack from industrial forces and foreign enemies from other lands. But then they're saved by these like mythical Teutonic knights that come out of the forest, like their ancestors. And then in the end, they have this like huge May Day celebration. So the Nazis would use pagan imagery, folk revival, spirituality as a way to normalize and naturalize this idea that there was a pristine prior state of being and a right way to be a man or a woman or a family that was in right cosmic relationship and would bring prosperity and confer favor upon those individuals and then therefore the state. You can see this today in everything from like prosperity Christianity to um, like purity culture around health and um, manifestation and love and light and all of that. Make no mistake though, this was a tool to justify land seizures in Eastern Europe and to justify the forced expulsion of local populations in favor of ethnic Germans and also to justify the execution of all those who didn't conform to these ideals or who resisted these ideals. So it's all bound up in genuine belief and also a huge amount of propaganda around like a right living or a natural living or a goodness that justifies the state execution of eugenic um, uh, ideals. So they, there was also like constant talk, like they were kind of like always seeking this mysterious wholeness, which had been stolen from them by a Jewish conspiracy and by urbanism. So cities were equated with racial chaos and cities were also considered a site of Jewish power and invisible control because the thought was since Jews have no land of their own, they control the world through power centers and major cities and major industries. Um, so like not actually any different from what QAnon is believing. So the Volkish movement was obsessed with the loss of land, identity, and global standing that had been stolen from them. So anytime things are like, there's an idea of like, this was stolen from me, this election was stolen from me or whatever. It's like hearkening back to these fascistic movements. They were obsessed with the superiority of their race and there was strenuous opposition to race mixing. They were obsessed with health and purity. So not just obvious like eugenics, which again, just glossary time. Eugenics is the study of how to like arrange reproduction in a human population to increase the occurrence of like desirable characteristics, desirable heritable characteristics. So breeding, selective breeding. Um, they like the health and purity, they, they were all into um, homeopathy, vegetarianism, um, biodynamics, organics, clean eating, all of that. 
Hitler was absolutely like a staunch vegetarian and like things that it's it's hard to imagine them becoming so harmful, but within an ideology, they very much become uh, at risk of being pressed into service of very scary outcomes. The Volklisch movement was also obsessed with family values. And this was a feeder ideology for the Hitler Youth and the League of German Girls, which so the Hitler Youth was the boys' arm and the League of German Girls was the girls' arm. And they would uh, send every child out to the country to work on a farm for a year after high school, hoping that they would want to stay in the country and become farmer soldiers. So they were doing military exercises as well as working on farms. Um, in order to be in the Hitler Youth or the League of Girls, you had to be ethnic German and you had to be free of heritable diseases. So this whole family values, health and purity thing extended even beyond their borders. So Germans from like, so what they call ethnic Germans had colonized various places in Eastern Europe. This is where my ancestors on my patrilineage actually came from. And I like discovered this through genealogy that in like the late 1700s, but especially the 1800s, um, the, the, they, the Tsar Nicholas in Russia invited Germans to come and colonize. There were other people too, other Slavs, but it was like Tsar Nicholas wanted, at that time, there was like this area that was like very fertile near the Black Sea. And there was an invitation to have people colonize it. And the idea was that there was supposed to be kind of like a benevolent, um, like a landlordship, even though they were German. So the Germans went and colonized against, uh, you know, at the edge of the Black Sea for like over 100 years. And during the Nazi regime, they were sending doctors very regularly, like multiple times a year to gather data. So there was extremely um, good data not health services. They weren't being provisioned with like medicine or anything like that. They were just doing tests because they wanted to see how long somebody was still German after they'd been off the soil for a long time. So this is why we know there was like very high infant mortality rate. We know exactly, you know, pretty much everything about the health of Germans in what's called Bessarabia, what was called Bessarabia on the Black Sea. Um, so the health outcomes were like extremely poor, uh, but the idea was that the Nazis were trying to figure out whether Germans colonizing other places were still ethnically German and how long it took, how many generations before they weren't German enough. So this was important to them in terms of how would we expand into Eastern Europe. The Volkischen movement was also super obsessed with ecology and the Nazi party was in part so popular because they embraced nature conservation they they took that movement and they wove it with folklore and mysticism to create this atmosphere of like a secular sacredness around land, forests, ecology. And so again, this helped them to legitimize their idea of a natural order and a pure Germany. Um, as I said, everything about natural, organic, and biodynamic living, the Nazis were very strong supporters of um, this, again, kind of reinforced the agrarian mystique. And um, the white Aryan nation as like normal and desired and natural. And they looked very deprecatingly actually on 
other peoples or governments who would master nature. You know, they actually really did center the idea of humans as part of the living chain of nature, just like any other organism. And if you look at the membership of the Nazi party, about 10% of adult men in Germany were card-carrying members in 1939. So like the, early, the very beginning of the war. So it's not a huge portion of the general population. But if you compare that to like the largest and most prominent conservation groups. So when I'm saying conservation groups, it's like today's equivalent of the World Wildlife Fund, for instance. 60% of the membership of the largest and most prominent conservation groups had joined the Nazi party. So there was a disproportionately large number of ecologically oriented people signing up for fascism. 25% of the membership of both the Teachers Association and the Lawyers Association were card-carrying members of the Nazi party. So there's a disproportionately large number of educators and legal experts signing up for fascism. And again, partly this is because the Nazis actually did introduce and enforce a number of ecological and social reforms and programs. The Ministry of Agriculture was one of the best funded uh, ministries, uh, branches of government. Even during the war, they were like third and fourth in funding it instituted this like far reaching organic and biodynamic program. And it used that as a guise to colonize Eastern Europe. Um, and again, it was the minister, Dare, who said, the concept of blood and soil gives us the moral right to take back as much land in the East as is necessary to establish harmony between the body of our Volk, our people and the geopolitical space. And then they positioned environmental damage with the destructive influence of other races and ethnicities. So again, urbanization was equated with Jews um, and the Nazi race to um, the drive to eliminate other races through the final solution, um, the, the Holocaust was justified as allowing German people's innate connection to the land to reassert itself. These are not present day scholars like looking back and interpreting the Nazis in an unfavorable light. They literally wrote these things down and published them wi widely. So like they said the quiet part out loud again and again, and people went along with it. So, this is important for us today because the presence of ecological values does not indicate a politics. Ecological politics or ecological values acquire political valence or salience or importance when they're interpreted and mediated through some theory of society. What, how do we think society should be organized? So you, we all need to watch out for any theory of society that even implies that it is pro-natural order or natural law. Um, and especially if there's some kind of like overt or implied naturally ordained um, authority. So we have to remember there is no siloed oppression, capitalist, capitalism, 
patriarchy, imperialism, and racism. These are fragile categories. You can't really separate them because they are interlocking, interlocking and self-reinforcing. So if the politics of ecological values are not clearly anti-imperialist, anti-racist, etc., then you are in very dangerous territory that is vulnerable to fascist creep. So we have to demand and certainly watch out for a thoughtful, clearly articulated and enacted commitment to things like, say, truth and reconciliation. But more importantly, I would argue, specifically the support of land back movements, even if it just starts with crown land being um, uh, like reappropriated or reassigned to indigenous nations, let's say. It, let's start small. Um, small. We also have to know when like binary thinking is present, that's like subtly or not so subtly reinforcing a doctrine of naturalism or health. We're just worried about their health. We're just worried about long-term health impacts, whatever it is. We also, if we're like engaging in community uh, or following someone, it's like, what are they actually doing? Like, is there a practice or are they simply expanding their platform? And while they are actually doing that, who is this benefiting and who is this oppressing? Because maybe they actually do have a practice, but you can't help but notice that it keeps benefiting the white people, <laughs> you know, or it keeps benefiting the able-bodied people, or it keeps benefiting the cis people. Um, so we have to demand that there's more than just words and it's not just abstract, there are actions, but that those actual actions we are noticing who the marginalized people are and how they're being protected or not, or targeted. When we think about small and delicious life stuff, we also need to be thinking about very specific place-based philosophies that are very concrete. So we're talking about the things we do on this soil right here, which neighbors that soil over there, which belongs to those people, but that are bound together in this ecosystem, this fragile ecosystem of also non-human beings that traverse and enmeshment. So their protection and the protection of that land is my protection and they should remain different and unique, right? Instead of like broad abstract, instead of ignoring plurality or multiplicity. So instead of concepts like Canada or whatever, it's like, it's so unique and it's so individual. Um, I often also think too, as I, as I mentioned earlier, like the microcosm of fascism is cult dynamics. So I have been thinking so much lately about the other 40% of membership in the conservation groups. <laughs> Who would be like, it must have been like, how is this happening? How are we coming together over this like shared value and you are winding up in such a different place? And so we have to, along the way, be cognizant. And like, it's, it's like a cliche, but it's true. If it walks like a duck and it talks like a duck, it's a duck. So the weaponization of the language of justice is a tale as old as time. So if you are in a space 
you can where you're like this does not feel right like they're they're using all the right words and it's sounding so good a phrase you can use to kind of like snap yourself out of the trance is I can't help but notice but and then I usually add the like if it walks like a duck it dogs like a duck it's a duck after it so I can't help but notice that even though you're using the language of anti-capitalism or something there's a bunch of labor being exploited for one man's benefit <laughs> or like for his gain or his cronies gain or some inner circle um I can't help but notice but even though you're talking about whatever village mindedness it's all this women's labor is being exploited behind the scenes um emotional labor administrative labor sexual exploitation all I can't help but notice <laughs> there's like a real imbalance here in power even though you're talking about um undoing patriarchy let's say or I can't help but notice that younger people are being actively recruited or at least attracted and nurtured um, and brought into proximity and elders or anyone questioning are being sidelined and sort of like disappearing. Um, or I can't help but notice that even though you're talking about, um, I don't know, people's rights or you're, you're saying all these things that sound very liberal, there is a conformity in terms of manners of dress or speech or thought or speaking. And I can't help but notice there's heightened anxiety around like in-group dynamics or speaking anything in opposition because there feels like group think. This is a way you can arm yourself. I can't help but notice and notice like what the response is. Um, but I, I think we are at a time where we have to remember the other 40% in the conservation group, they could not believe what was happening to them. And they probably tried to resist in many different ways, but were frozen, dumbstruck by how could we be ending up in such different places? Um, and, you know, I, I think, again, we, we follow like a consequentialist philosophy. You can say all the words you want, but what is the actual consequence, the actual impact, the actual result? Um, I wrote a blog about this back in whatever, 2016, um, essentially saying that like, yes, punching Nazis is a spiritual practice. <laughs> so um, I will link to that. Uh, but this is this is the time. This is that we are again and still in a place where uh, we have to be um, cued to resistance and not get uh, wrapped up in the weaponization of the language of goodness, wholeness, purity culture, right relationship ways of being. We need to be able to hold nuance and predicament and um, uh, paradox all the time and address it face on. So that's all I have prepared uh, about fascism. I want to open it up to see if anybody has any clarifying questions. Of course, we'll get into the deeper stuff once you've chewed on it. We can talk about this next week. But if anybody has a question, you can go ahead and uh, raise your hand or unmute yourself. Oh, Ruben's raised his hand. Go ahead, Ruben. Uh, I just wanted to flag that Jen had a question in the chat. Oh, 
How did they orchestrate this in the context of behavior systems change? Well, definitely they were leveraging the big part of the pyramid, which is social proof. That's a big part of it. But maybe Ruben would like to say more since uh, you're, this is your theory of change. Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, in kind of the short and pithy conversations about behavior change, uh, I might overemphasize how difficult behavior change is to make. And um, I more accurately, like we're changing behavior all the time. Um, what's really hard is to change the behavior you want when you want it. <laughs> um, and so when you think about something like, I, I'm assuming this is maybe a question about the rise of the Nazi movement in Germany. When you think about the scale of that, um, someone at the same time who is like, hey, we should uh, we should start recycling. Like they're just not going to get any traction because there's the there's a, a sucking vortex of attention going into uh, what the Nazis were doing. So um, a, a lot of the time, like that's that's the world we live in is there's just a massive suction on some part of our culture at one time. And if what you're interested in, you know, it's like, oh, I don't like invasive species. I don't, you know, whatever. It's like the, the your particular interest is not going to gain traction in the scale of where attention is is going. Um, so I would that's part A. Uh, part B is how they orchestrated it. Like, again, we have like super limited attention. And so we tend to cope with that with a bunch of mechanisms like um, following groups, <laughs> um, you know, like uh, uh, following emotional responses. So when the Nazis are a, um, and what we don't do is uh, do a lot of thinking and analysis. We don't make up spreadsheets, you know. So when the, the Nazis are saying, you know, Germans, you know, Germany for Germans, then it's like, everyone's like, oh, yeah, that feels good. Germany for Germans, sure. You know, and so, and then it's like, okay, well, let's go do what these people are doing. They they, they seem reasonable. Um, and so it's just a, um, it's a very, they use just very skillful um, uh, targeting of these, what I think of as coping mechanisms, our, our, the way we have evolved to deal with our lack of cognitive capacity so because we don't sit around thinking like wait a minute let's analyze these guys you know what are they saying you know we don't do that and so we do a bunch of other coping things like you know following the crowd following the herd is one of the biggest ones and they were just experts at creating herds and creating very emotional impact emotionally impactful herds so mm -hmm. And remember that um, fascism is about not only the charismatic leader, but also uh, civil organizations. So the Nazis were, so when you think about how many of the teachers, the educators, the conservationists, those are the social organizations, the literal trade associations that were supporting. So you don't have to have everybody. You just have to have this like critical mass of people in key zones. And that is how the movement carries on, especially when these are all movements that the average person is going to be like, of course, I trust doctors, lawyers, ecologists. Of course, those are trustworthy. Of course they are. And so the rest of us are not 
like, and that is a natural and good thing to do. We should be able to trust our institutions. Exactly. There's like no harm, no foul to the 60% of the members who signed up because they thought they were part of something good. And so this again brings us to like, how do we protect ourselves? And this is where the cult dynamics comes in. Nobody joins a cult. You delay leaving an organization that has lied to you and manipulated you. It takes a long time to figure out you're being lied to and manipulated. So you have to track who is being impacted. What is the actual consequence? They're using all the right words, but I can't help but notice that it keeps benefiting a small group of white male elites. So, um, okay, so I'm noticing we're at time. <laughs> I'm going to save your other questions because I, I, so honestly, it's because our nervous systems cannot take this much. I'm going to encourage you to move, keep your arms and legs on, keep stretching, keep like looking at things that are stabilizing. Um, try not to immerse yourself in the swirl of this. We are resisting all together. We don't have a federal election in Canada again until the fall of 2025. But scary things are happening provincially with attempts to claw back rights of women and LGBTQIA folks to say nothing of the utter inaction on the 94 calls to action uh, from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the stalling of the national inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Any optimism I might have had in 2020 has been totally dashed by the discovery that Pierre Poiliev, you know, all of that nonsense from him. One example uh, is that his campaign was basically secretly marketing themselves to incels with hidden hashtags on the YouTube videos. If you're not sure what an incel is, it is a, a short form of involuntary celibate, so, you know, um, misogynists. Anyway, I think it goes without saying that this should be of interest, this episode, uh, to my American listeners as well, who've already been living under fascism during the Trump presidency. And of course, the threat is ongoing with new clones, basically, constantly springing up out of the Republican Party. I don't believe the future fascist leader of America will be as buffoonish as Trump. Um, I believe they will be somewhat more sophisticated in their fascism. They'll employ technology to amplify and reinforce their message and reinforce their um, policies, enforce their policies. And this will be incredibly scary in a different way. So when, when we refer to a small and delicious life approach, when I say we, I mean myself and my husband, Reuben Anderson, when we refer to orienting towards a small and delicious life to confront fascism, this is not about looking away or denial or self-interest or, you know, we're going to take care of ours or uh, withdrawal or retreat from the fight. Even though, I mean, I could understand if you're unfamiliar with my work or Ruben's work, it could sound like that. But I would encourage you to listen to my interview on Peter Michael Bauer's podcast, The Rewilding Podcast, which I'll link to in the show notes, or even go back to episode 161 of the Numinous podcast here that I mentioned at the top of the show. It's the episode called Collapse in a Nutshell. And if you're curious about what the Ask Me Anythings uh, are like in the network, um, the Ask Me Anythings, the AMAs are live Zoom calls, and they usually happen the following week after a one-on-one lecture like the one you just listened to. 
Uh, you could listen to the Numinous Podcast episode 193, which is a clip taken from an AMA when we were asked how to estimate like how much is enough to save for collapse, like in terms of money or other resources, like what would be kind of a guideline to use um, since everybody's situation is different. So I'll also link to a link roundup that I have for all of the like 30 plus episodes I've ever done on collapse. Um, and uh, yeah, hopefully you'll see that small and delicious life is um, not a retreat. It's a deep, deep engagement with the reality of these times. You'll find all those links in the show notes in your podcast player or at numinouspodcast.com. And now the listener shout out. I'm excited for this one today. Reviews mean so much to an author because they help boost the SEO and connect the book with its perfect audience. Um, so even though we hate Amazon, please go on there and do it for the author whose work you love. And I'm just going to say this. It's my birthday on October 28th. And you know what I'd love? A review. So thank you uh, to everyone who's already done that. This is my listener shout out and giant heartfelt thanks to Taylor. I'm sending a Care Bear beam of love to them. They wrote an Amazon review that says, and I can only imagine it must have like killed them to <laughs> have to, you know, probably buy from a large corporation that's so antithetical to them. Anyway, Care Bear Countdown 4321, sending you love. For this great review, Taylor writes, this book is the first, quote, magic book that I have really, truly connected with. I appreciate Carmen's thorough, gentle explanations. She finds beautiful ways to update rituals and make them accessible to modern people. I love that she doesn't present anything as the right way to do it, just the way she does it. There's also really great stories and references for each part of the Wheel of the Year. It has made it easy for me to add these celebrations to my life for the first time. Oh, yes, nailed it. That feels great to hear. Thank you, Taylor. Okay, last little thing in case you missed it. I don't know how you could, but if you missed it, it's free week happening in the Numinous Network this year from September 17th to 23rd. So the Numinous Network is like an online version of the YMCA. Uh, our monthly calendar revolves around nervous system workouts designed to support your trauma recovery. So your injury may be impacting you on the physical, emotional, mental, or spiritual level, and we've got you. We got you. Our somatics classes three times a week are a way to strengthen your connection to yourself and your body's wisdom. They're a way to increase your resilience and ability to self and co-regulate. They support vagal tone so you have more capacity to socially engage. And they give you a good dose of contact nutrition. And we do this to help make living under capitalist, imperialist, white supremacist patriarchy just a tiny bit more doable. Not to mention our on-demand video courses and other live events. We usually have more like, than like 35 calls a month led by myself and a handful of other wonderful, spectacular humans who are, are the other guides. So sign up for my newsletter for the free week opening announcement and save some time for us during September 17th to 23rd. Or if you don't have time, you can still come check us out and um, maybe check out the rest of the Collapse 101 course. There are several on-demand video courses um, you can sign up for my newsletter and learn more about the Numinous Network at carmenspaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-B-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care. Take care.